1561, in the dedicatory epistle to the faithful of France, Calvin wrote in his book of lectures on Daniel, he presents himself to his fellow countrymen as a 16th century incarnation of the biblical prophet. Not drawing an explicit connection, Calvin left his readers and hearers in absolutely no doubt that he spoke to his fellow faithful as Daniel had spoken to the Jews. Like Daniel, Calvin would never return from exile. And like Daniel, he saw his role to console a persecuted people with the promises of God. Although I have been absent these six and twenty years, he writes, with little regret, from the native land which I own in common with yourselves, and whose agreeable climate attracts many foreigners from the most distant quarters of the world, yet it would be in no degree pleasing or desirable to me to dwell in a region from which the truth of God, pure religion, and the doctrine of eternal salvation are exiled, and the very kingdom of Christ laid low. Hence, I have no desire to return to it. This was Calvin answering the question that many had put to him, where is Calvin amongst the faithful in France? Why does Calvin not return to be amongst us? Such association with Daniel is, is evident from the start. In his description of the prophet, we find more than a little bit of health, of, sorry, of self-portraiture. But he, Calvin writes of Daniel, was more anxious for the common safety of the church than for his own personal security. He evidently suffered the greatest grief and was distracted with the utmost anxiety when the position of affairs discovered no limit to, uh, to, to sever and miserable an oppression of the people. We relate to this image of Calvin, his frequent association with Paul, imprisoned, an exile, and a wanderer for the sake of the gospel. One of the things I should say that has most interested me, uh, and certainly it's something I came across in, in attempting a biography of him, was the way in which Calvin would both speak of the patriarchs, prophets, of Paul, in, uh, about their lives, but one found that he was frequently speaking about himself and his own experiences. The book of Daniel for Calvin was, quote, a very mournful yet profitable history. It records the exile of an exemplary young man and his companions while the kingdom and priesthood were standing. It is a story in which, as Calvin says, the choicest flower of his elect people to extreme calamity. For what is a sight more unbecoming, Calvin writes, than that youths endued with almost angelic virtues should be the slaves and captives of a proud conqueror, when the most wicked and abandoned despisers of God remained at home in perfect safety? Was this the reward of a pious and innocent life, that while the impious were sweetly flattering themselves through their escape from punishment, the saints should pay the penalty which they had deserved? Prison and exile with their cognate forms, are to be found throughout the broad expanse of Calvin's writings in both French and Latin, deeply over, uh, interwoven with significant themes, as I hope to suggest this afternoon. 
I will explore the ways in which Calvin employed the language of exile and prison rhetorically, theologically, pastorally, and emotionally. And I, I have to touch on these fairly briefly given the constraints of, of time, but maybe we can raise this in conversation. I want to think about Calvin's understanding of God's relationship to his people expressed in terms of just, justice, punishment, equity, and permissiveness. I suggest that Calvin's attempt to resolve God's accommodation to humanity, it leads to some of the most interesting questions in his theology, challenge us to think about what he means when he speaks of both prison and exile. So how does Calvin speak about prison? Let us begin with the fateful year of 1553. It was a dismal time for the Frenchman. Relations with the Genevan Council were so poisoned that the reformer threatened to leave the city, something he had done on several occasions. And in August, a man named Michael Servetus arrived in the city and almost single-handedly destroyed Calvin's reputation across the Protestant world. Calvin may not have personally experienced imprisonment, but his encounters with Servetus took place in the fetid dungeon of the city hall, where the Spaniard spent his last months. However, let's go back a few months to the in the spring of 1553 and the case of the five prisoners in Lyon, young evangelicals arrested and despite the pleading of the Swiss Protestant cities, executed not far from Geneva, but beyond Calvin's reach. Calvin's letter to the prisoners, written once their fate was sealed, is well known. His consolation is largely what we might expect. God was using their lives to further the gospel. They would soon be in their heavenly home and they could have full assurance of their inheritance. Martyrdom, Calvin wrote to them, is a token of superabounding grace. I want to draw your attention to a passage in the letter which could be easily overlooked. It captures, I think, an evident dissonance or apparent dissonance in the Frenchman's consideration of divine and human agency. Calvin raises a series of crucial questions that the answers are not entirely straightforward and there is tension. The conundrum, well known, is why evil seems to prevail in the world and further, what the faithful should do in response. Calvin appears to give two answers to the secured in prison. The first is martial. The prisoners are to engage in a battle, quote, to which the spirit not only exhorts us to go, but even to run. It is hard, Calvin continues, to, to see the pride of the enemies of truth so enormous without it getting any check from on high their rage so unbridled without God's interfering for the relief of his people. This is the battle towards the, which the prisoners should advance. Yet suddenly in the letter there seems to be an arresting change. While it pleases God, Calvin writes, to give his enemies the reign over, over duty, our duty sorry, is to be quiet, although the time of, although the time of redemption tarries. So the prisoners were to be passive in the face of affliction, resigning all to the hand of God. So what happened to the battle? Is Calvin saying two separate things? I, I don't think so. Rather, his inclination is to make two moves. The first is to emphasize the interiority of the struggle. 
the resistance of temptation. Secondly, he recasts the argument of struggle, punishment, and revenge into an eschatological framework. Whereas Calvin seems to be developing a model of passivity in the face of persecution, the prisoners are comforted and consoled with the promise of future retribution. Their tormentors, Calvin assures them, will receive, quote, the horrible punishment prepared by God. The line between persecutors and persecuted is not so clear for Calvin, for as the elect of the prisoners of Lyon are promised that they will take part in that divine retribution to come, their roles will ultimately be reversed. Calvin frames the whole of human existence in terms of a prison where, quote, the humans are bound with the fetters of an earthly body. Yet Calvin is not simply trading on a simple dualism of body and soul. Certainly, he speaks of the need to escape the prison, the embodiment, that embodiment that prevents men and women from living according to the law. Yet given that Calvin speaks often of the gift of human body, of relations, of nourishment, we are not dealing with an either-or situation. This is brought out, I argue, in Calvin's frequent image of light, a platonic borrowing, but one with strong, of course, scriptural uh, resonance. God's gifts penetrate the confines of prison, allowing the person to grow in knowledge of God. Prison is characterized by incomprehension. It's a place of obscure discernment, and Calvin says partial ignorance. Yet while in prison, that ignorance is slowly relieved, leading to, Calvin speaks of, clear knowledge. And of course, that reminds us of knowledge which begins the first book of the Institutes. Calvin in the second book says, For as one shut up in a prison, where from a narrow opening he receives the rays of the sun indirectly and in a manner divided, though deprived of a full view of the sun, has no doubt of the source from which the light comes and is benefited by it. So believers, while bound with the fetters of an earthly body, though surrounded on all sides with much obscurity, are so far illumined by any slender light that beams upon them and displays the divine mercy as to feel secure. It's not difficult, thinking of this passage from the Institutes, to consider the Republic of Plato, Book 7, the image of the, the allegory of the cave. The image of the sun and of sunshine runs through Calvin's Old and New Testament commentaries, often serving, particularly in the Old Testament, as a metaphor for Christ. But what interests me more directly at the moment is the way Calvin draws upon this in his own experience, his own body. His own body becomes a map for tracing the healing and remedy offered by God. There is nothing, and this is bring, turns us to the image of the sun. He says in the commentary on Micah, there is nothing we know more cheering and healing than the rays of the sun. For a stench would soon overwhelm us even within a day, were not the sun to purge the earth from its dregs. We see a wonderfully medieval, early modern view of, of nature. Without the sun, there would be no reprieve. We feel as a sort of relief at the rising of the sun, and when the sun sets, we feel, as it were, a heaviness in all our limbs. The sick are delighted in the morning and experience a change, 
from the influence of the sun because it brings us healing in its wings. So think of this idea that he has of the sun coming partially through the whatever opening there is in the prison, its healing qualities, and the way in which Calvin frequently speaks of the restoration of the soul, of redemption, but also in terms of a kind of physical uh, restoration. Calvin feels God dealing with his people through the lens of his own agony and recuperation. And we need to remind ourselves that, that most of the works that I'm talking about are written from the mid-1550s through to the early years of the 1560s when Calvin was desperately ill and almost all of his works were dictated from bed to secretaries. He could, he could move very quickly from Latin to French uh, in dictation. Uh, when it had a series of secretaries who simply wrote out what he said. This is certainly how the biblical commentaries were done. And in this period, he's mostly, in this period of the 1550s, early 1560s, he's focusing on uh, the Old Testament uh, commentaries, particularly the great commentaries on the prophets. And of course, the last thing I think in a historical context we need to remind ourselves is this is the very edge of the, of the wars of religion in France. What Calvin most feared would tear apart his native land. So what is the state of this person in bodily prison? The prison is the place where daily struggle takes place. It is one which is constantly attacked by Satan. The prison is a place which, which the faithful seek liberation, yet always it remains the reality of their existence, of our existence in this world. With the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God, the body is made the site of redemption, and therefore so is the place of prison. Yet in this life there is progress, Calvin says, however small, in which lusts are tamed and subdued and the body is purged. As long as the elect are bound in prison the in the, of the body they wrestle with, he says, our corrupt and natural disposition. We may, Calvin writes, we may say that Calvin writes that the life of a Christian man is constant study and exercise in the mortifying of the flesh until it is certainly slain and the spirit of God obtains dominion in us. Wherefore, he seems to me to have made most progress who has learned to be most dissatisfied with himself. Yet there's a twist in the tale. Body and prison, as I've already suggested, do not exist in a radical duality, for both, in a way, are redemptive. Clearly, it is the word of God that sets prisoners free and opens the prisons in which the faithful are bound. The experience of imprisonment, however, is crucial to the spiritual development of the person. Calvin makes a dis sharp distinction, I think this was... Uh, quite, for me, quite a, a, a fascinating discovery. He makes a sharp distinction between the faithful or the elect and the reprobate. Those who do not suffer, who deny the righteousness of Christ, who seek no remedy for their wickedness and are not heavy-hearted, according to Calvin, are not actually in prison in the sense in which he's speaking here. Prison is the place of the faithful and their struggle in this world. For Calvin, prison is a spiritual state in which those who have faith are incarcerated, however blind they might be. As we shall see in his accounts of biblical prison stories, Calvin speaks of other prisoners locked up in their crimes as justly punished for their deeds. That is the natural order of things, and Calvin has no quarrel with either imprisonment or capital punishment. 
That is the duty of the state in preserving and upholding the law. But as we see in book four of the Institutes, what, what he opposes is not just punishment, just as in the sense of right punishment, but cruelty. The prison in which he is primarily interested, however, applies to the elect. It is a state from which the Pharisees are excluded. Calvin characteristically refuses to engage in speculation about the next life and does not speak of prison as a place of that afterlife, namely hell. His discourse on prison belongs primarily to this world and is for the living. Calvin has an extended treatment, for example, in the creed about Christ descending into hell to liberate those from prison in which they are located. He denies that limbo is some sort of prison under the earth. The language of prison rightly belongs to the church, he says, because, quote, the salvation of the whole church is an escape from prison. That's in book one. Calvin denies that there is any evidence that Christ descended into heaven, so something he got into considerable difficulty with in his own time. What is true is that with his coming, he illuminated, Christ is, illuminated the souls of the dead to perceive the grace, quote, of which they had only a foretaste. Calvin's primary interest in employing the language or image of prison is to frame the immediacy of the Christian life. That's why almost all in the Institutes, the, the prison references are found in book three, focusing on sanctification and the Christian life, the recovering of our true humanity. As I mentioned, prison is a site of redemption because it refers both to the body and the world that Christians inhabit. The image that most interests Calvin is of the person in the, quote, earthly prison of the body, so oppressed with weakness, quote, that hesitating, hesitating and halting and even crawling on the ground, they make little progress. Let every one of us go as far as his humble ability enables him and prosecute the journey once begun. The passage is taken from Calvin's account of the Christian life in book three of the Institutes. Our labor is not lost, Calvin argues, when today is better than yesterday. Late in book three, Calvin draws together the principal images of prison, exile, and death. If heaven is our country, what can earth be but a place of exile? If departure from the world is entrance into life, what is the world but a sepulchre? And what is residence in it but immersion in death? If to be freed from the body is to gain full possession of freedom, what is the body but a prison? It is the very summit of happiness to enjoy the presence of God. It is, not mis is it not miserable to want it or desire it? But whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, he says, quoting 2 Corinthians 5, 6. Calvin poses these questions, but again, the issues are not easily resolved. The earth, a point to which I shall return, is a place of exile, and the world is a sepulcher, and the body is a prison. In Calvin's terms, the response to these questions is an affirmation. Particularly in book three, as I've said, of the Institutes, Calvin seeks to demonstrate that these states are temporary, they're liminal, like the prison, which is illuminated by the shafts of life, exile, the sepulchre, and the prison of the body are not final realities, but that from which we are being liberated and will be liberated, but only partly in this world. 
Calvin frequently speaks of those who are in the state as groaning, yearning, desiring the good that they can only glimpse. Again, reminding us of his reading of Plato. Calvin never separates his language of prison from that of the journey. Even within the confined space of prison, Calvin wants to speak of the possibility for movement in a spiritual sense. This is, this is brought out, I think, very well in the story of Paul and Silas in, in Acts uh, 16. When the gates are thrown open, they don't, they don't rush out like the other prisoners because their work is to remain. Even within, in book four, Calvin sums up the prison is the place where grace is performed. I quote, but if the children of God are captive in prison as they live, they must necessarily feel very anxious at the thought of their danger unless their fears are allayed. For this single person, purpose, then, he subjoins the consolation that there is, quote, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So I'll turn to the, to the subject of exile to keep my remarks relatively short. In the Institutes, Calvin declares we are all exiles. But what did he mean? At one level, the answer is obvious, given his assessment of the depravity of humanity. We are hopelessly estranged from God on account of sin. In another sense, more specifically, of course, Calvin himself was an exile, as we spoke about at the beginning, spending his adult years in Basel, Strasbourg, and of course Geneva. But I want to dive uh, briefly, but a little deeper, into the diverse ways in which the reformer draws on the themes and vocabulary of exile. And to do so, given the constraints of time, I shall focus on Calvin's commentary on the great prophet of the Babylonian exile, Ezekiel, whose authority, Calvin writes, arose from the extended hand of God that allowed him to excel in the prophetic gift far from the sacred land. Living among the captives, Ezekiel, according to Calvin, spoke God's word in a foreign land, which he constantly contrasted with the idolatry of those who remained behind. We are reminded of the opening words to the Daniel dedication in which Calvin placed himself similarly, declaring that true religion was preserved in exile while his native land was full of abominations. Those in Jerusalem prided themselves on their superiority, that they had not been taken into capture, and so somehow that gave them a sense of advantage and privilege. In contrast to Isaiah, Calvin saw Ezekiel as a man of the people, whose language, although rather coarse, was accommodated to the persecuted he sought to console. This was certainly a reference to Calvin's own use of vernacular language as an exilic prophet in his own time. Further, citing a quality that he often attributed to his friend and mentor, Martin Bootser, Ezekiel was for Calvin a prolex author. God, Calvin writes, wished purposely to select a man from the multitude contemptible in outward appearance and then to raise him above all mortals to dignify, uh, to di by dignifying him with the gift of prophecy. The accommodation of the language by the prophet is also explained in terms of the people to whom he was speaking. They were, quote, rude and dull and also obstinate. 
In an opening reflection on the character of those in exile, Calvin observes that they degenerate from, quote, the purity of their language as from their faith. Hence, the prophet purposely bends aside from elegance of language. Whatever repetition he might use with men, do full, both full and slothful, it was never superfluous. Calvin has no interest in extolling or valorizing ex exile as inherently superior in terms of moral standing. God's justice is manifested both amongst, amongst both those who remain as well as amongst those taken away, but for different reasons. As mentioned, those who stayed in Jerusalem fouled their relationship with God by insisting on the centrality of the temple as the heart of worship. Their error was to confuse divine accommodation with the essence of God himself. God does not appear in the temple, but only as a concession to humanity. No building can contain him. In contrast, the exiles, on a point which I'll return in a moment, are guilty of a loss of memory. Memory and exile in Calvin are closely interwoven themes. The exiles have forgotten the reason they were dragged from their country, which lay in, Calvin says, the just vengeance of God. They attribute their state to the cruelty of their enemies, who could be both cruel and at times hospitable. But they forget that the judgment of God had torn them away from their homeland. The temple, on the other hand, rather than the locus of divine worship, is employed by Calvin as a symbol of God's promise to remain with his people. So what is the role of the prophet in exile? It is precisely what Ezekiel exemplifies, to offer testimony amongst, uh, concerning the reign of Christ, the restoration of the church, and to herald the mercy and pardon of God. However, before these words of comfort are possible, the people must be chastened on account of their obstinacy. Calvin's th favorite term for those in the state of in exile is that they are obstinate. They complain and complain and complain, an experience the Frenchman knew very well in Geneva. In truth, in many ways for Calvin, exile doesn't work. The flower of Israel taken into Babylonia not only forgot God's judgment, but willingly engaged in the superstitious practice of their captors. God had to be patient until, in Calvin's words, he was, quote, broken down or worn out by their desperate wickedness. One of the most striking passages, I think, of Calvin's anthropomorphic writing about God. God has been one of the, uh, sorry, God has found, and what distinguishes the remnant is not just that they were in Babylonia or in Jerusalem, but whether they heeded the words of the prophet and repented. Exile is death, Calvin writes, and those in exile are indeed the living dead. We must consider the condition of the exiles. It is surely worse than if they had been destroyed by a single death, for they are dying daily. And at length, when cast out of the sacred land, they are like the dead. Hence the exile was more sorrowful than death, since it was better to be buried in the holy land than among the profane. Since then, they have been mixed with dogs, as it was no life to them to protract a wretched existence amid constant languor. And if the hope of restoration has been taken away, considering which we are now treating, treating 
and to which not a single syllable applies. Exile by itself was like death. So exile, I think this crucial line, is exile by itself is like death. Yet despite this dire situation, Calvin will not allow that they are no longer, quote, sons of God. The church continues to exist, even if invisible to human eyes. We must hold, therefore, that the church is wonderfully preserving in its hiding. For its members are not luxurious men, or such as win the veneration of the foolish by vain ostentation, but rather ordinary men of no estimation in the world. We have a memorable example of this when God recalls his own prophet from the chief leaders of Jerusalem, not to other leaders who should attract men to wonder at themselves, but to miserable exiles whose dispersion among rendered them despicable. Calvin reminds his readers that while those who remain in Jerusalem believe that the others were sent into exile as punishment for their particular sins, that the church was preserved far from the cult. Remember, he writes, that Ezekiel, Daniel, and his companions were among those in a foreign land. God had not overlooked the elect, although they were few. They are the ones who endured exile with calm and composure. For Calvin, exile is physical, but a, is not nearly physical, but a spiritual state of alienation from our true humanity when men and women are unable to see themselves as God does. The only way in which this true wound is healed is by repentance. Commenting on Ezekiel 14.23, when God says, And they shall comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have, done this with, have not done this without cause, all that I have done in it. Calvin writes, This then is the consolation, as I explained it yesterday. Remember, he was giving these as the, Daniel, uh, the, Dan, the, the Ezekiel as lectures. Uh, while the exiles acknowledge that cruelty cannot be as uh, ascribed to God as if he had exceeded moderation, uh, exacting punishment, for the desperate wickedness of the people demanded it, but the passage contains a useful doctrine, since we collect from it that we are never tranquil in our minds unless the greatest equity and justice appears in God's judgment and becomes present to our minds. As long, therefore, as we do not acknowledge God to be severe in just cases, again, just in terms of right, righteousness, our minds must necessarily be disturbed and disarranged. Hence, the word consolation is opposed to those in turbulent thoughts. This language of equity requires our attention. I've spoken primarily about the stern manner in which Calvin interprets relationship with exiles. But that's only part of the story. In discussing divine human relationship, Calvin frequently speaks of tolerantia, God's accommodation or permissiveness in accepting what falls below adherence to the law. For Calvin, this permissiveness, which is not to be confused with an exception of failure or an acceptance of sin, follows from God's role as father. This is true in both testaments. God, as Father, adds towards, uh, acts towards his people in forgiving, as a forgiving parent. God chose to rule as Father and punishes as a parent, not with the full rigor of the law, which would be intolerable to all. Or, the law for Calvin is not a separate standard, but the hand of God 
to be administered according to his will. Humans cannot grasp, ultimately, the justice of God. The faithful are not those who belong necessarily to the community of exiles or to those who remain, but those who remain upright in heart. Ending his commentary on Ezekiel, he does so with the words of Jeremiah, you shall remember me. Prison and exile in the mind of John Calvin are two related paths into the mental world of a reformer where we meet theologian, churchman, and pastor. Exploration of the vocabulary of Calvin, as well as other Reformation writers, I suggest, provides us with a humanity that inflects, colors, and molds the doctrinal points with which we engage in study. They lead us to questions of why people believed what they did, why did they make the choices they did, and the multiple and sometimes contrasting forms that their faith found expression. We do not have direct access to the minds of Reformation figures, but we can engage them in their texts, in their writings, and in their meditations. But readings more sensitive to their syntax and grammar, as well as, as, the, as we have tried to do briefly here, offers, I would suggest, a way forward to thinking about Calvin and the other figures of the Reformation. Thank you. <laughs>